bold, calm, gentle. You could describe it as unwavering confidence. That's what God wants followers of Christ to have, a boldness about them, a willingness to speak the truth at all costs, a calmness about them, that when the storms of life hit, they don't experience the anxiety like the rest of the world, but they're at peace from God's promises, a gentleness about them, that they're able to approach others the way Jesus did, and they themselves are approachable. You could say that followers of Christ are to live with an unwavering confidence. I'm concerned this morning, as I look at my life and as I look at the lives of those who proclaim the name of Christ, that we don't have this unwavering confidence, that too often we're not bold. We don't have this calmness that we should, but we have the same level of anxiety as our neighbors who don't know Christ. We're not any gentler with the truth than people who we believe completely different than. So how is it that we can become people who are bold, gentle, and calm? Well, that would mean we need to have deep roots. That we need to have roots that go so deep that we've got strength for each thing that we face. Another way of looking at it this morning is that I believe Christians are called to be a brand new suburban and not a 1987 Chevy Nova. You see, when I went to take my driving test, I had to use a 1987 Chevy Nova for my driving test. My mom owned a little four-door uh, Chevy Nova. Just, I mean, it's a cardboard box on wheels, basically. The beauty of a Chevy Nova is that you can parallel park that thing just about as easy as you can parallel pike a, park a bike. It's awesome. A Chevy Nova is cheap to run. Great gas mileage. A Chevy Nova is easy to operate. There's some great things about a Chevy Nova. It's easy. It's light. But at the end of the day, if you're riding in a Chevy Nova in the back seat, good luck hearing anything that's going on in the front seat. And if you're riding in a Chevy Nova on the interstate and there's any South Dakota wind at all, good luck getting up to the speed limit of 75 let alone cracking the minimum of 40. When you're in a Chevy Nova and there's wind, the thing just moves all over the road. A Chevy Nova is not exactly a picture of strength, but a Suburban, on the other hand. You can drive a Suburban in the wind and not even know it's windy, except via the gas tank. You can drive in the Suburban and enjoy the comforts of the back seat, the middle seat, and conversation because the wind doesn't drown everything out like the cardboard box of the Chevy Nova. Too often, though, as Christians, we're like the Nova. We're swayed all over the place by different teachings, different winds, whatever it might be. I would contend that as Christians, we've come to a place where we want something easy cheap gas mileage, but we give up something as a result. We give up strength, stability, boldness, and calmness. I would contend this morning that the main reason is we've settled for a Christless Christianity rather than a Christianity that's centered on Christ. 
Because when Christianity is centered on Christ, there's nothing easy about it at all. There's nothing lightweight about it at all. It's deep, it's heavy, it's secure. Today and the rest of this week, we want to answer some what seem to be simple questions, but questions that must have answers in order for us to be bold, calm, and gentle. We start with a very simple question today, who is Jesus? On Thursday night, we answer the question, what benefit is there for me in Christ's death? On Friday night, we answer the question, what happened at the cross? And on Sunday morning, one week from today, we answer the question, is Jesus still dead? The answer to each of these questions, the degree to which we answer these questions, determines the depth of our lives. And if we're going to be able to be bold, calm, and gentle. This morning we start with the question, who is Jesus? And you might say to yourself, well, okay, simple. Jesus is God. We've been going to church forever. We know who Jesus is. Let's take a look back. And what I want to do is let's pretend that we were alive when Jesus was alive. Let's, let's pretend for a moment that we're actually hearing who Jesus says he is and we're hearing what the people around Jesus are saying about Jesus. If we want to know the identity of Jesus, let's go right to the source. Jesus himself or the people that were directly right around Jesus. And let's say, who did he say he was? And who did they say he was? Today we celebrate something called Palm Sunday. It's, it's looking back on a day in history when Jesus entered the town of Jerusalem. And Palm Sunday is all about one thing, a king coming to town. And so this morning, to give us a little experience like we were part of Palm Sunday, grab your palms this morning. This will be interactive, or if you don't have palms, just use your hands. Whenever I say the word Jesus, the rest of the sermon, I want you to wave your palm or wave your hand and say, He is King. Jesus. Marvelous. Whenever I'm talking about the Son of God this morning, and I use His name, you're free to say, He is King. Because that's what Palm Sunday is all about. On Palm Sunday, we celebrate that Jesus was coming into Jerusalem and he was coming for a festival. The festival is called the Passover Feast. The Passover Feast, in very simple understanding, is Independence Day for the nation of Israel. Because the Passover Feast is when they celebrate that God passed over harming them and instead freed them from slavery in the nation of Egypt. So on Passover, they celebrate and they remember that God brought his wrath against people that were not covered in blood. And they also remember then that God established a new relationship on that day with the people whom he passed over. So Jesus was coming to celebrate the... Wonderful. When the Son of God was coming to celebrate the Passover in Jerusalem, it was a big deal. There was, some estimates, 2.75 million people present in Jerusalem. Jerusalem's not that big. So let's go conservative. And let's say we don't agree with the conservative Bible scholars. Let's say we agree with those who are very skeptical of the Bible. Those who are skeptical of the Bible say anywhere between 1.5 and 1.75 million people. Because Jews from all over come to celebrate the Passover because it's a big deal. So they're there in Jerusalem awaiting the celebration. And as they're awaiting the celebration, word comes 
that there's another man coming to town. This man coming to town is a man who just days earlier raised someone from the dead. That's why you see in John chapter 12, there are verses we read, it talks about how these people who were present when Lazarus came out of the tomb were now spreading the news about him. So you can imagine, I mean, word is starting to spread on Facebook and Twitter and and everybody's sending emails saying, hey, look, someone's coming to town who raised someone from the dead. I mean, can you imagine how big of a deal this is? Imagine for a moment that today somebody walked down to Miller Funeral Home and walked into the room where all of the caskets are and said to each casket, come out, come out, come out. And somebody came out of the casket. Deep. I mean, does anyone think there'd be a little surprise going on? Oh, I don't know. The person who said come out might be on Oprah tomorrow or Bill O'Reilly or any talking head for that matter. Well, I mean, it's never been done. It's never even been claimed to be done. And so here you got a man coming to the city who just did this, brought someone out of the tomb. And so Jesus, all right, we're only halfway into this and you're already losing steam. So here we got the Son of God coming to town. And as he's coming to town, word's starting to spread that there's a man coming, a man who's greater than other men. Well, who do they believe is coming to town? Who they believe is coming to town is found here in John chapter 12 in what they say. John 12, verse 13, they say, Hosanna, which means save us. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. Very simply, what they're saying here is they're saying this, oh, blessings to you, King. Thank you for coming to save us. They're saying this, Jesus They're saying, hey, you are our king. They believed that this son of God, that this man who was coming, they believed that he is king. Why was Jesus hung on the cross? Good, good. Why was he hung on the cross? Well, think back for a moment, if you're familiar with the Bible story, of what sign was hung above Jesus? No, no, don't answer the question. Follow the earlier rules. The sign hung above him on the cross read, King of the Jews. The reason that Jesus was hung on the cross. Well, that's good. Just keep going. Not because he was not hung on the cross. Because he was some threat to Pontius Pilate or the Roman government. I mean, the Roman government was like, oh, why do we have to deal with this carpenter that's wandering around the city? The reason he was hung on the cross is because the religious leaders went to Pontius Pilate and said, hey, there's someone claiming to be the king of Israel. Pontius Pilate, of course, is like, "Uh, do you remember who I am? Because at the same time that Jesus is coming into the city of Jerusalem, there's something else happening on the other side of the city, and we miss this all the time. So we have one man coming in on a donkey with people waving palm branches and laying clothes down and bringing people with him. We've got another man coming to town, no. This other man is coming on a horse and is coming with full military might. His name is Pontius Pilate. Because Pontius Pilate is coming on behalf of the Roman Empire to remind the Jewish nation who is king. Pontius Pilate's kind of coming to just be a a, a visible force during the big celebration. The Roman Empire kind of saying to the Jews, yeah, you can celebrate this idea about God and that you're free and stuff, but hey, look who's in town this weekend. 
who's in town is the most powerful man, Pontius Pilate. So you have that king coming to town, and now you have the religious leaders going to that king and saying, hey, there's someone to be the claiming the king of Israel. Well, why is it such a big deal that you're claiming to be king of Israel? If you have your Bible, notice that language, king of Israel. Or in verse 15, it says, fear not, daughter of Zion, which means, Israel, don't be afraid. Your king is coming. Why is it such a big deal that the king of Israel is coming? Well, the religious leaders knew that the person who's claiming to be the king of Israel is not just the king of one people group or one small piece of land. The Old Testament have prophesied that the one who comes and is the ultimate king of Israel is not just the king of that, but is the king of the universe. The religious leaders knew that the prophesied king of Israel was the one who was going to make God known to the rest of the world. We forget something. God of the Bible, the creator of the universe, is not really known outside of the nation of Israel before Jesus comes. Before the Son of Man comes, God is not known outside the nation of Israel. The universe was created, and then the creator chose this people group, Israel. And then the creator said, I'm going to use this people group, Israel, to make myself known to the rest of the world, to shine the light to all people groups. And so, The king of Israel who fulfilled the prophecies was the one who was claiming, hey, I'm not just king of this place, I'm also going to be king of the universe. Because they believed, and it's taught in the Old Testament, that when this king comes, all other kings bow down to him. So the reason I bring this up is to see how big of a deal it is and why the religious leaders are scared when he's claiming to be the king of Israel. That's serious business. He's making the most radical claim In the history of mankind, Jesus is saying, he is saying very clearly to the people who lived in that time, everything written about in this book, all of this teaching, guess what? It's about me. Jesus is saying, I am the one. Jesus is saying, I got to rethink this next time. He's, He's saying and he's making a radical claim. Because he's claiming that, hey, everything in all of history that's been done in the nation of Israel, it's all about me. And guess what? I am the one who all other kings are going to come and bow down to. The religious leaders knew the radical claim that was being made by the Son of Man who was riding in on the donkey. So when we ask the question, who is Jesus? You just gave the answer. That is who he is. It was not a teacher that was riding in on a donkey and going to hold some classes at the temple. There's no shouting going on here saying, yes, let's go to the temple and have class. This was not a counselor riding in on a donkey that was going to meet with some individuals and and couples. No, the people gathered around this man on the donkey wanted one thing, and the man on the donkey was claiming to be one thing, a king. Who is Jesus? This is who he is. This is who he understood himself to be, and this is who everyone in the culture thought he was claiming to be. This is crazy that this one man is claiming to be the king of the universe, the one who has known God and is going to make God known to everyone. You and I, we don't need another loving person in our life. That might sound really weird to say. 
I, I don't need another loving person in my life. I don't need another thoughtful counselor. What I need is someone who has the power and the authority to conquer my greatest problems, to be loving and caring. What I need and what you need is a loving king. Because a caring teacher and a loving counselor cannot conquer our greatest problem. And our greatest problem is our wrongdoing, our sin, and the grave. We need a king who is loving, who can triumph over that stuff. This morning, we celebrate the Son of Man rode in on a donkey, claiming to be king. And we look forward now to how this king is going to triumph. Because what does, king, what does every king have to do? Every king has to win some battles, right? If you don't win, what happens? You're no longer king. Every king has to win. Well, how's Jesus going to win? Look with me in John chapter 12 if you have your Bibles. How is it that this man on the donkey is going to win? How is he going to triumph like every king does? John chapter 12, verse 24, we hear, verse 23, we hear this. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. In other words, what he's saying here is he is saying, hey, the moment's here. My greatness is about to be seen. And the disciples had to be saying, yes, this is it. This is the moment we've been waiting for. He's come to Jerusalem and he just announced the moment is here. Well, then what does he say? Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Oh, man. What? You just said we were going to conquer and now you just said you're going to die. Well, how's that going to work? Because this king, who's the king of the universe, conquers vastly different than the king that day who was riding in on a horse. The king who was riding in on a horse that day, Pontius Pilate, how does he conquer? He conquers by putting the people who are enemies on a cross. By physical killing them. Military conquer. How does Jesus conquer? He says right here, whoa. He says right here, he conquers by dying. Our king is vastly different, and our king's methods are vastly different. He chooses to give of his life rather than ask others to lay down his life so he can stay in power. This is the way of our king. And today we celebrate communion. Communion which was originally established on the Passover feast. Communion is known as the victory celebration in the church. Such a weird thing. We come and we have these little wafers or bread, wine or juice, and we say, hey, this is our banqueting table. This is our victory meal. Oh, that's odd. How, how is this your victory meal? It's our victory meal because our victory is the death of Jesus Christ on the cross. And so every time we celebrate communion, what are we doing? We're actually celebrating our victory. We're remembering how our king has triumphed. What are the implications for you and I today? If Jesus has triumphed this way, what are the implications for you and I? The implications are this. 
If he is king, knowledge is not enough. It is not enough to know Jesus. It's not enough to know that. That's not what's required of us. A simple knowledge is not what's required of us, and knowledge is not enough. I have the knowledge in my mind that if I make a grocery shopping list, I'm going to spend less money and eat healthier. But guess what I do all the time? Go to the grocery store without a list. I know that. I, I mean, I know it very logically. A list saves me money. But I still go to the grocery store without a list. Knowledge in and of itself is not enough. And the same is true in our relationship with God and our relationship with Jesus. Let's look and see what is enough. Look with me in John chapter 12. He just announced that he's going to die. Now verse 25 and 26, he says, Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. Knowledge is not what he's looking for. What he's looking for is obedience, following. If we want to be underneath King Jesus, guess what? We can't just know who he is. He has to be our king. And if he's our king, what he's saying right here is that we travel the same road that he has traveled. To think that our king has to travel a road of suffering and we get to travel a road of pleasure is hypocrisy and contradictory. Jesus says, we have to follow the same path that he has followed. The implications, if this is true, that he is king, the implication is this, you and I have to follow. We have to follow. We can't just know things about him. So the issue this morning is not, is the Son of Man king of the universe? The issue this morning is not, is the man riding the donkey a king? No, no, no. That issue has been solved. He is the king no matter what anyone says in this room this morning. No matter how you respond this morning, guess what? You have no say in it. Jesus, he is king. It does not matter what I say. It does not matter what you say. He's king. That's not an issue. What's at issue is this. Is he king in my life? What's at issue is, is he the one who has conquered on my behalf? Is he the one with the reins of control over my heart, my mind, my being, who I am? I can find two places in the Bible where the crowd tried to make Jesus king. Two times they tried to do it by force. Both times that I read at least, he sneaks away. He pulls back and leaves. Seems very odd. Here you have an opportunity to, to by force, he's got enough people, become king. But it's not the way the Son of God operates. This morning, by, by one word, just by one word this morning, everybody in this room could be bowing their knee to him as king. He could do it. He's got the power, the authority to do it. It's not the way he operates. It's not what we see in Scripture. What we see in Scripture is he does this. He says, I'm going to be a king who lovingly lays down my life for people. And I'm going to say to these people, I love you. I know what's best for you. I'm going to give you an opportunity to come and let me be 
your king. The ball's in our court, folks. He's put it in every human's court and said, what are you going to do? Are you going to say, you can be my king? He's already king of the universe. Is he king of your heart? This morning, you have an opportunity to receive something. This morning, we're going to celebrate the victory dinner. We're going to celebrate our king conquering on our behalf. And so this morning, I want to invite you to participate in the victory dinner. I want to invite you to receive your king who's died on your behalf. This morning, we're going to celebrate with some of our young people who this last couple of weeks have been going through First Communion. They met with me, and then I sent them home with uh, adults to learn from them what it means to participate in communion. We talked about the Passover, and we talked about Jesus dying for us. And so this morning, we're celebrating with them that this is the first time they receive this blessing. But for many of us, this is another time in a list of many that we've received it. Well, this morning, let's ask ourselves this question. As I receive this gift, is the one who gave it my king? As I receive this gift, his body and his blood given for me, is he my king? We can't force you to receive it this morning, just as Jesus doesn't force us. But we can offer it to you this morning. Free will and say, here it is. Jesus says, here I am. Do you want me?